It's the 25th of June, 2017, and this is episode 335 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Ryan X. Charles from the Yours Project. Uh, we just call it yours. We <laughs> just call it yours. Fair enough. Ryan, thanks for joining us today. Uh, thank you. Very happy to be here. So there are a couple of angles for this conversation that I'd like to have. On the one hand, I'd really like to talk about yours itself. And then on the other hand, there's a conversation that's going around broadly about kind of the lower value use cases on Bitcoin. And you guys kind of made a decision that's rather impactful to that whole thing. And I'm kind of, I'd kind of like to get your thinking about it. Sure. So let's start with yours first as a project. I honestly don't know that much about it. I know that it's a platform aiming to solve a couple of fundamental kind of platform level problems for content creation and curation. I didn't participate in the Steam project, but I was an early advisor on it. And what I really liked about that project is that it seemed like the curation could kind of be self-reinforcing. And I was really unhappy with it when they launched it in such a way so that the people who got all the weighting in terms of the curation were people who had put money into the project rather than being people who had actually done good curation and been rewarded by the system. It seems like that put it at a major disadvantage. Talk to me about yours, not necessarily in the context of Steemit yet. I would like to get to that comparison eventually, but just kind of talk about the motivation behind yours and tell us a little bit about your story too and how kind of yours came to get started as a project. Yeah, so it's probably best that I'll just give the story, uh, give sort of a bit of my personal background. I've, I've been on here before a long time ago, so my story's here, but I'll give a brief overview. So I used to be a, a physicist. I was getting a PhD in physics, and I discovered Bitcoin in early 2011. And I was just blown away with what I saw as the potential of Bitcoin. I thought, this technology really could create a new financial system, you know, one that's decentralized, one that's not based on these institutions, which uh, I was unhappy with for various reasons. And so I, for a while, I was a Bitcoin hobbyist. Uh, eventually, I, in early 2013, Bitcoin, the Bitcoin community got big enough. And it was around that time, actually, Adam, you and I met in person at the San Jose Bitcoin Conference in early 2011. Sorry, 2013. I said the wrong year. Got back. And I was so motivated. I'm like, Wow. This space is just exploding. I've got to get involved in this. So I quit my PhD and went full-time Bitcoin. Didn't know exactly what I was going to do. But I ended up joining a company called BitPay, uh, which was then and is still now the largest Bitcoin payment processor. And I worked as a software engineer, uh, wrote a bunch of open source software. Ended up having this unique opportunity to join Reddit. So while I was at BitPay, I got contacted by a recruiter at Reddit. And they were hiring a cryptocurrency engineer. By this point, this is somewhere around the middle of 2014. So I thought, okay, well, this is just a really interesting opportunity. Like cryptocurrency engineer at Reddit, I mean, you could just brainstorm the potential to use this technology on Reddit. It could be really, really cool. So I interviewed and whatnot and ultimately left my job at BitPay to join Reddit. Now, Reddit has its own story. I'm going to skip over most of that. I think I also told that on, the, on this. Uh, we'll link that episode in the show notes. <laughs> it ultimately didn't work out at Reddit. I had to leave. Basically, they had turmoil at the company that had nothing to do with me. And they basically didn't make sense for them to work on cryptocurrency stuff. So I went elsewhere. I worked at BitGo for a while. I was a software engineer working on uh, Bitcoin security. But then I wrote an article in the middle of, uh, in the summer of 2015 called Fix Reddit with Bitcoin. And this was my most popular article I'd ever written. 80 people emailed me after I wrote this article saying, I want to help you build this project. I'm like, okay, well, that's a lot of validation that that many people want to not only see it exist, they want to help me build this project somehow. So I, I left my job at BitGo and started working on it as this sort of open source project for quite a while 
maybe about six months, it was just a purely open source project. There was no business or anything there. But eventually realized I was going to run out of money if I didn't try to turn this into a business or something somehow. So I started getting serious about you know, turning into a business. I found my co-founder whose name is Clemens. Uh, he has a PhD from Oxford. He's been in the Bitcoin space for a while. And so we decided to co-found the company. We rebranded to yours. The reason why it's called yours is because, well, it's your content. It's your money. It's your community. So it's yours. So it seemed like the perfect name for this, this platform. By this time, we're, uh, we're about early 2016 when Clemens and I went at it sort of full-time, decided to co-found an actual business around this. And we ended up raising a small round uh, from led by DCG, one of the big uh, investors in the space, and a few other companies and, and individual people were involved in our small round. Total raise of 177k, which is pretty small by company standards, but also especially small given you know this the ICO craze, which is a whole other subject we can get to. So let me describe the actual product. What are we building? What is this thing? Right. It's actually evolved a lot with time, which is why I kind of share that story, because along this whole time, I've been thinking about ways to uh, apply cryptocurrency to solve problems in media and social media in particular. So what we've ended up building is it's like medium with a paywall. So you can just write an article. Anybody can sign up. You can write an article with you know, embedded video, audio, things of that sort. With the twist is that you can put a paywall inside the content. So you can put a micropayments paywall. So for instance, uh, I wrote an article just earlier today where I was describing the soft launch. We've soft launched this product. It's live. You can use it. And so before the paywall, I put a bunch of basic information. But then behind the paywall, which is 10 cents, I put some detailed information. So if you want to really know the details and whatnot, you have to pay 10 cents to learn the details. Uh-huh. Yeah. So there's a lot more to the story, but I'll, I'll just say that it took almost all of the actual effort of building this was in making micropayments possible because right. this is really easier said than done. Micropayments have been talked about since the 1990s. Or like the product we've ended up building is incredibly simple from like a usability point of view. Like it's just like a blogging service where you can write an article and put a paywall in it. But if you think like, has that ever existed before? Because we're not actually aware of a product that's social that anybody can sign up to and just write an article and put a paywall in it. It sounds like the most obvious monetization mechanism ever, but it's never existed before. And we think the reason is uh, it's legally hard to do micropayments. It's also technically hard. For legal reasons, you know, like if basically, if you, if you put all the money on a server somewhere, you're gonna be regulated as a payment processor or a bank, which is very difficult and expensive to comply with those regulations. But until recently, there was no other technical solution. It took something like Bitcoin to enable peer-to-peer payments to be possible. And then more than that, because we're all very clued into the debate in Bitcoin about how fees are high, Bitcoin, you certainly can't do micropayments on Bitcoin on-chain today. Not anymore, yeah. Not anymore. I used to be able to, but yeah, not anymore. You need some type of L2 solution. So we built uh, this L2 layer, and I'll skip all the details, but basically you settle to the blockchain Mm -hmm. uh, so that most payments are off-chain while still being trustless. So it's still peer-to-peer in the sense that, you know, if I make a payment to you or the people there is at least one person bought my article... Uh, this morning. So that person made a peer-to-peer payment to me and paid 10 cents to read the full version of the article. And then when I cash out, I'll have to settle to the blockchain and broadcast my transactions. And that's how I withdraw. So that's an overview of it. That's the basic product idea and the history there. Sure. Yeah. So let's, let's get into it before we get into kind of the more Bitcoin stuff. So it does sound like the product has gotten a bit simpler since the last time I think I looked into it. I think the last time I was looking at it, it was aiming to be more 
like a Reddit with an upvote and a downvote thing, or at least something like that. Walk us through kind of the evolution of the product over the course of time where you went from the kind of original vision to, to this, um, you know, medium with the paywall thing. Yeah. Uh, what what was, what drove you kind of in that direction? Because it does yeah. seem like, is this like an MVP version or is this? Well, it's two things. One is it's an MVP, but really what we tried to find was what is the best payment model to do first? Because one of the things that we've sort of put a lot of brain power into this whole time, this whole history of this project is coming up with countless ways to monetize content. So actually, once you, if you just have the idea of putting micropayments into a social platform, there are a lot of really creative things that you could imagine doing. So I'll run through a few examples. So one example, which was everyone assumed early on this was what we were going to do, it was the first idea, but for various reasons we thought maybe it's not the best idea. What if the way it worked was, just like Reddit, there's an upvote button, and when you click that upvote but button, you're making a payment to that person, and then it like bumps up the content on the page. That's a fine idea. The part about that that we don't like was that everything would be free. We think that there are ways to make it so that everything's free. I think Steam is a good example of they're really dedicated to that, like all the content can be viewed for free. But there are also reasons to pay for things. And we came up with lots and lots of alternative models that are useful if you've got a payment mechanism where you're actually buying something rather than just tipping. But let me just run through some of the other payment models that we've come up with over time. So you get sort of the idea of how much experimentation we're gonna be able to do coming up here. So another idea we had was something we call the endorsement model. This is where rather than just tip someone like you could imagine an upvote button, what if when you click that upvote button, you're making a payment not just to the original author but also to the previous upvoters? The reason to do this is you give people an incentive to upvote because not only are you giving a donation to the author, but also you're potentially profiting from the other people that would then go and curate that content or endorse that content. So you have a reason to endorse things early because you will actually profit from doing so. So we call that the endorsement model. We ran with that one for quite a while. There are a variety of reasons why we ended up not launching that one first. We consider that one sort of a, another model we might explore uh, later. But let me give you a few more because it's, it's just really interesting to think through them. So another one we've thought of is what if in order to comment on someone's post, the author sets a price. So they can just say, okay, uh, I'm going to open up the comments to anyone, but it costs 10 cents to write a comment. We think this would do a great job at eliminating all of the troll comments that you see on, I like to give YouTube as an example. It's kind of a famous example for having low content, uh, low comment quality. If it just costs 10 cents, you wouldn't get those really, really low quality comments. And you would do a really better job of the ones that are actually really good. Someone actually is willing to pay 10 cents to write it. It's probably worth reading. You know, it's a higher quality. We've also had the idea of, well, what if someone could pay more to bump up their comment on the page? And these payments would go to the creator. So it's an alternative way of monetizing what the creator's doing. If they generate a good discussion, they earn more money. Right. So we call this the comment model. There are a number of different ways you could put payments in comments. Let me give you a few more, though. <laughs> We've got another one that we call the affiliate model. Again, it's once you've got like payments in the app, you can have a lot of fun with this. Right. What if you could earn 10% by sharing the link for a piece of content? Right. So you see something that's wonderful article and you, you have five of your friends that you know are going to love this article and they're actually going to pay for it. So you use your affiliate link and you share your affiliate link with the other, uh, your friends who then go through, follow through and actually buy the article. 
and you get 10% of the revenue by being an affiliate. You just got to have some basic payment mechanism in the app, and now you can make that possible. You can have an affiliate system. Right. You can imagine doing it like you have to worry about what behavior am I incentivizing here? We don't want to. We don't want people to go spamming these links everywhere. So uh, what if you just had to buy the content first before you could be an affiliate? Then like you can't just go be an affiliate for all content. You got to be somewhat invested in it. You got to buy it first. So we've got more of these models. I'll give you one more, but again, it's fun to brainstorm. So one more model we have is something we call the investment model. So imagine if you were, the, you were writing a book and you've got a full-time job, so you can't dedicate your full time to writing this book, but you know it's a really good idea and you've got the time to write the first chapter of that book. So you publish the first chapter on yours and we have something called the investment model where people can invest in your book Okay, so instead of making a micropayment to you, they pay you a lot more money. But by doing so, they share in the future revenue of your book. So imagine you get enough investment to fund the next month of your life while you build the, write the rest of the book, and then you share the revenue with the investors in the book. Mm-hmm. So we call that the investment model. This would be a way of uh, investing in internet content. Uh, you would invest in individual pieces of content. There are other spins on this where you could imagine investing in the author or something like that. So that's the final model that I like to share. But the cool part is just brainstorming. Like you could imagine on a social media app, just take Facebook or Reddit as an example. Every single button, every time you click something, if there's a way to do micropayments built into the app, you could monetize everything. And you could find different ways of who pays, when do they pay, why do they pay, how much does who get, and what proportions, and so on. And it's just a lot of fun to brainstorm these. So we've started with what we think is the absolute simplest thing that'll probably work, medium with a paywall. It's just a paywall for internet content. It's never been done before. I like it. I'm able to use it myself. We've got a lot of people that like it. It's so simple and obvious that it's easy to understand. When I go try to explain to someone what is yours, I don't have to give them a 30-minute explanation of what the product is. I can just say, well, it's like, have you heard of medium? Like, yes. Well, it's like medium, but with a paywall. So they get it. So it's a good first payment model, and we think it'll probably work, and we think it, I think a lot of people will get value just from it being that simple, but we're really excited about all these other payment models that we're going to add later. So this is a starting point for the yours, for, if I want to say the yours network, but this, so this is a starting point for yours, yeah. and then from here, basically, you expand to kind of these other models, and so the idea here is to have all of these models be available within the project. Yes, over time. Over yes, time, absolutely. yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the off-chain layer two system that you've got to have going on here because I've been playing around with these things too. You can do them in different ways. A lot of people think that you kind of have to wait for segregated witness to actually make its way into the Bitcoin protocol in order to use some of these layer twos because of the malleability fix. But there are other ways you could do it. I'm curious, kind of, did you wind up going with a real layer two where everything is locked up with cryptography or are you more on the you know like people pay you they get credits and then they can withdraw at the end yeah so our solution is much more uh, it's real it's the real deal this is cryptography based it's like the lightning network Uh, so let me give the story there so you know when clemens and i decided to let's do this let's let's co-found a business together and let's do this for real this was early last year early 2016 it was about march or april of early last year. And Bitcoin fees had gotten really high. They got all the way up to five cents per, per transaction, which was pretty high given the history of Bitcoin. I mean, it, it used to be, as you said, you used to be able to do micropayments on Bitcoin. I mean, there was a time when you could send transactions for free. 
So anyway, five cents was pretty high and we're like, well, we think it's hard to know for sure, but we think the value of the content on this platform is roughly going to be like 10 cents. So a five cent fee is extremely high and we'd like to be able to go lower. Like we'd like to be able to do things that are one cent, right? And higher too. But you know, at the same time, five cents was already high enough that it was kind of problematic. So we're like, well, we are going to need a real micropayment solution. One way to do this is the centralized approach where you just basically put everything on a server or you go with PayPal. So let's talk about the simple Bitcoin option first, which is something like change tip. That's a pretty good option, but it presents potential legal problems. We were really worried about ultimately being regulated as a payment processor or a bank or something like that and being shut down or, or being overregulated where we have to buy licenses that are more expensive than the money we're earning. Hmm. So we didn't like that idea. We didn't like the idea of doing, doing it the centralized way. You could also use PayPal or something like that, but they don't support micropayments. I mean, as soon as you look into it, you just can't use PayPal for this either. Their fees are 30 cents or higher. Right. So it's just too expensive to use PayPal for, for something like this. The other option was to build an L2 on Bitcoin, to build something like the Lightning Network. So we looked at the status of the Lightning Network. I don't think there was any working version of the Lightning Network at that time. There were some papers. There may have been some initial repositories that had some half working code, but it wasn't something we could just plug in and right. use. It was easier for us to just read the papers, figure out how to build it, and just build it ourselves. Right. And so that's what we did. So we just started building our own L2. Also, our technology is entirely web-based. So it, wasn't, it wouldn't even be possible to use the other implementations that have been created because mm -hmm. none of them are built in JavaScript like right. ours is. So we needed something web-based, and we needed it to, to work, and, and it was easier to just build it on our own. So ours is similar to the Lightning Network with a few caveats. So it has a centralized architecture where we have a, something we call the Oracle. You can think of it as being like a trustless payment channel hub. Hmm. Everybody opens a channel to the Oracle, to or from the Oracle. The Oracle does not have access to anybody's money, though. You can think of it as being similar to the Lightning Network, but with one node. Uh -huh. So the Oracle can't spend your money or anything like that. But it does solve this problem of radically decreasing the number of channels that have to be opened. Right. So the users don't open channels directly to other users. They open a channel to the Oracle. So you're always one hop away from the other user you want to make a payment to. This is important because otherwise you'd have to open a channel to everyone you want to pay, which, right. which is actually expensive. We made a, a decision early last year when we started this to not base our technology on SegWit. There were, there were implementations of it that existed, but it wasn't live on Bitcoin. It was very unclear how long that would take. So we decided to not base any of our technology on SegWit. And you don't need SegWit. Uh, you can do, you, basically, the differences are uh, we can only do one way, or sorry, not one way, but single funded channels. One person has to fund the channel. Uh, I could get into the more technical stuff later. I'll try to keep it as light as possible. But one person has to fund it. It can't be that both people have to fund it. And also there has to be this sort of, there, there's a, still a transaction malleability problem, which you have to worry about. So you have to have some type of escape hatch for when the other person stops responding while you're funding the transaction. Mm -hmm. And our escape hatch to this is to not make the system fully permissionless. Mm -hmm. So we are going to either require that people validate with an existing social media account or we're going to charge them. So one of those two options. There's another option which we're exploring which is a technical solution where you have this extra script escape hatch using a check lock time verify, mm. but then you have to close the channels every six months or something yeah. like that, with, which kind of seems, so it's just kind of a, you know, it's neither option is ideal. Yeah. So we didn't do anything on, uh, we didn't do anything with SegWit. We had this working on Bitcoin testnet last fall. We announced 
gosh, now it's probably one or two months ago that we we did the first real test on Bitcoin mainnet. That is, we I think we have the only working routed micropayment solution on Bitcoin mainnet today. Routed in the sense that it's more than one payment channel. You route through this Oracle to make the payment. Uh, we don't yet support many oracles like right. the lightning network is like one with many oracles we don't support that yet but we do support it with one hop but it's a um, trustless microtransaction network it's trustless in the following senses uh, yes trustless in its micropayments trustless in the sense that at all times you have your money and no one else has access to it so if you want to cash out you can just broadcast your latest commitment transaction and cash out immediately and no one else has that ability like no one has your transactions or your keys or these uh, things we call secrets which are either HTLC secrets or revocation secrets. It's again a technical thing, but you have to have your private keys and your other secrets. And only you have that. Uh, no one else has that. The server doesn't have that. The other users don't have that. So you have, you're in full possession of your money at all times. So it's trustless in that sense. So anyway, we got this working on Bitcoin. But meanwhile, as I was joking a moment ago, that gosh, the fees got so high on Bitcoin a year ago at five cents, which was high at that time. Well, it's gotten a lot higher. The fees have gotten so high now it's a, I don't even, I didn't even check it today, but I think it's north of $3 on average per transaction. Yeah. So let's run through the math here. This is quite expensive. I mean, even if you're going to use a, a micropayment solution like the Lightning Network or like the one that we built, um, you still have to open payment channels. Right. And so you have to, you have to have the following transactions. First, you got to send Bitcoin to the wallet that supports payment channels. There's transaction number one. Then there's something called the funding transaction, which is transaction number two. Then there's something called the commitment transaction, which is basically the channel itself. That's right. transaction number three. <laughs> so assuming the average cost per transaction today, it's about $9 just to begin using a solution like this. Right. So from the point of view of a social media app, the thought that we're going to have to charge our users $9 and all that money just goes to Bitcoin miners before they can use our app is incredibly expensive. That's a huge onboarding cost. It's a big deterrent to anybody using it. In fact, I'm even leaving out some of the details. For various reasons, it's actually more expensive than that because the, the transactions have these more complicated scripts. So they're bigger. It's actually more expensive. Also, you, you do have to fund the channel. So right. not only do you have to pay $9, but you got to put more more than $9 in the channel or the entire channel amount just goes to fees. So if you think about it, if you're paying $9, imagine you fund it with $100 and, and you imagine you're sending predominantly one way. That is, you're either paying or you're being paid and you use up the channel and you got to broadcast it. If with $100 funding the channel, that's a 9% fee. That's actually still really high. I mean, that's not even competitive with PayPal right. or something like that. Exactly. So even with these payment channel technologies, the fees on Bitcoin have gotten so high that it's really prohibitive to like getting new users. It's really problematic from the point of view of trying to get new people to use this stuff. It's really expensive. So shortly after we announced, we got this working. It's working on Bitcoin mainnet. We're the only ones that got it working today. We then switched to Litecoin like a week later because we just ran the numbers in Litecoin. Now, Litecoin doesn't technically do anything really better than Bitcoin. It, it ultimately, will have the same problem Bitcoin has. But the reality is today, Litecoin is 100 times cheaper than Bitcoin. Right. So when our users onboard to our system, it's only going to cost about 10 cents instead of $10. Right. So it's a huge difference that, that we, could, we could even pay it ourselves. We right. can easily pay a 10 cent fee to onboard our own users. Not a problem. We had no choice. It's not like we liked Litecoin. I, mean, I, don't, I mean, I, we do like it, 
but we, we had no economically viable alternative. Our only option realistically was to switch to Litecoin. And you might ask, like, why Litecoin when you could use millions of other things? Litecoin is technically very, very similar to Bitcoin. So we had hardly any changes to make. I think it was at the end of the day, something like three lines of code we had to change. And then we had to change from using Bitcore to using Litecore, Hmm. which is a different library, a different blockchain API tool. And that's it. And everything just worked the exact same because that's how similar Litecoin is to Bitcoin. Hmm. So anyway, that's just the situation we're in. So even with you know this technology, payment channel technology, Bitcoin is still very expensive and we had no uh, choice but to switch to Litecoin. So your use case in particular seems like it's very sensitive to that type of thing where your average kind of per piece of content cost, you know, you're saying it's 10 cents. We've been feeling very similar pressures with the work that I'm doing with Tokenly and the stuff we're doing kind of in the music space and our average price is $10. Um, you know, in terms of what we're expecting people to buy. And that entails two on-chain transactions. And so, again, it becomes a a non-starter from pretty much the word go. One thing I kind of wonder about with your project, just generally, regardless of what kind of blockchain you're using, one of the real challenges that I think we've seen over the last, I don't know, since you and I have been in this, uh, since 2013, is just that people are really resistant to using and actually acquiring cryptocurrency, whether it's because they perceive it to be expensive, they perceive it to be complicated, it's very different from what people use. So does to so to use yours, it sounds like I have to use cryptocurrency. Do you consider that the kind of biggest challenge you have going forward? And if not, what do you think it is? So it is definitely a challenge. Definitely, it's something that we've been talking about in the crypto space this whole time, which is how do you make this stuff usable to ordinary people? And this is a problem we really, really face at our company because we're trying to be absolutely mainstream. We're trying to make a mainstream social media app. We're trying to reach everybody. So how do you really make this stuff that easy to use that it doesn't deter mainstream usage? So there are a few answers to this. I believe it is solvable. Like, I think that it's not that hard for people to understand it's internet money. Like, it's just like money. Like, when you travel to another country and you use a different currency, it's not difficult conceptually to get that. When you travel to Mexico, they use pesos there. So on the internet, they use Bitcoin or whatever it is. So I think there is, I don't think the educational barrier from that point of view is that high. The problems are all these like software related problems and the fee problem. I mean, Bitcoin today, I just can't even bring myself to tell any normal person you should use Bitcoin if the fees are so high. Like, so they're going to ask me, so I have to pay like $10 before I can even get anything. Like, it just, it sounds very odd. Like if you don't care about Bitcoin itself, and certainly plenty of people do, but plenty of people don't, they're just not going to be willing to pay that fee. So that's a huge problem. And Litecoin for us is better in that respect. But there are a lot of other things you can do to make this a lot easier for normal people. So for instance, one of the things we do is we actually denominate prices in dollars on yours. So in the US and even really throughout the world, the US dollar is widely understood that even outside of the US, if you had to pick one fiat currency to use, probably be the dollar with a global audience. We also intend to localize in the future. It's something we're not doing yet, but eventually you will use whatever your currency is locally so that it's what's familiar to you. Other things we can do are credit card and bank onboarding and offboarding. Well, and let me just stop you there because I think that that's really the big nut of this question is, can I use yours without first being in cryptocurrency 
and through the relationship with your company? Like, are you working with Coinbase or any of these other players to actually help like sell people these things with credit cards? Because that seems like the problem isn't so much about the price from my perspective. The problem isn't so much about like fees. It really is just that unless you're like a foreign currency trader and have actually used markets before, all the interfaces for doing this stuff is really foreign to like the, you know, to the mainstream audience that you're talking about. It still is really hard. Yeah, it is. It's really hard. So there are there are ways to do this. So we are working with Coinbase. Uh, we haven't integrated with them yet. So if people try to use our app after this podcast, uh, right. they won't see the integration. But we are working with Coinbase to integrate with them. So the way this will work is we're just going to have a, a, the ability to buy Litecoin built into the app with a credit card. This is something Coinbase already provides. We don't even have to like talk with them right. because you can just sign up and put this widget in your app. Cool. And they support Litecoin. So this was part of the reason why we were able to switch to Litecoin. Mm -hmm. And they only recently added support. So just recently, they only supported Bitcoin. But because they added support for Litecoin, you can buy Litecoin with a credit card in a widget in the app. So the way it'll work is there'll just be a fund my wallet button. Mm -hmm. You click the button, you type in your credit card information, they send a Litecoin transaction. There's not even any KYC for small amounts. Mm -hmm. So if it's only small, they are able to sell you a tiny amount of Litecoin. Right. In fact, I think it actually works with pretty large amounts, but there's no reason for it to be that large. Right. So you'll buy like five or so dollars worth of Litecoin, put it on yours with a credit card. So onboarding is very good. I'll also say there, there is, a, I think, a slightly better way to onboard people, which is you don't even have to do that because if you're a content creator, you right. can earn it. And I think earning it's the better way. Now, in order for that to work, though, we really have to have a good economy working on the app where people are buying and you know, yeah. selling, so to speak. And I, I'm optimistic that will work. So I don't think everyone will actually have to buy it. I think you'll earn it. But in any case, the other flip side of this is the offboarding problem. And for some reason in the U.S., this is harder. Uh, it's a little bit easier in other countries. But in the U.S., it's really hard to get the money back out again. So unfortunately, we don't have a good answer to that in the U.S. In the U.S., you're going to basically have to sign up to Coinbase, do KYC, sell it, and transfer it to your bank account. And it's not easy. So it's going to require more steps. So when you say off-board, or when you, when you say, when you're talking about the other side of this process, you're not talking about exiting to Litecoin. You're talking about exiting from yours straight to dollars, right? Correct. So the, the same problem, the opposite direction. Correct. Yeah. On yours, you already have the Litecoin. There's no reason to exit to Litecoin. You've already got it. It's in your web browser. Right. I mean, you have it. You can do whatever you want to do with that Litecoin. The offboarding I'm talking about is if you don't know how to spend Litecoin right. or something of that sort, how do you actually spend this money? Right. And most people are probably going to want to cash it out to their bank account. Mm -hmm. So how do you cash out to a bank account? That's what I call the offboarding problem. How do you get them off the system yeah. uh, and get the money into their bank account? And that's just not easy in the U.S. Now, in other countries, it is sometimes easier. Like Russia has a good system where you can much more easily load value onto credit cards, mm -hmm. as I understand. The problem for us is we're going to have to build partnerships with people all over the world. Right. So there's, there's a totally different challenge for us, which is now we're going to have to do a bunch of biz dev to like yeah. work with all these companies all over the world to make sure the onboarding and offboarding process is smooth everywhere because it depends on the country. So that's just something we're going to have to do. And we'll, we'll be able to do that over time. We'll have 
the best support we can for the U.S. first, probably Europe second, and then we'll just try to be as, in as many other places as we can as quickly as possible. So basically, I'm a user. I come into the ecosystem. I sign up for an account, and I don't have any cryptocurrency, so I use my credit card. Once you've done this integration, yes. you know, load in ten dollars worth of Litecoin to my account. That Litecoin then shows up in a payment channel already, or do I need to start that? So it'll show up, you'll see a balance. Let's suppose you load $1 worth of Litecoin. Sure. You'll see $1 in your, what we call the cash page. Uh -huh. You've got $1 of cash. Does that fluctuate? So you said you're, you're showing everything in dollars. So yes. that means the price fluctuates. Great question. Yeah. So we've, we've already learned like uh, people are very confused to see the price fluctuate. Yeah, we, we knew that would probably happen. And it is already the case in our little soft launch here with a few users, something like 30 people. They're like, how come I had $1 earlier? Right. Yeah. And now I have 91 cents. I'm like, well, the price of Litecoin collapsed today by 11%. <laughs> and, and so that's why you have less money. So that does happen. And so what we're going to have to do, we don't, we, there is a, there are technical solutions to this long-term. There are ways to do like stable coins and things sure. of that sort. That is just easier said than done. A we won't be able to do that. problem unto itself, yeah. Yes. So, excuse me. We, we won't be able to do that quickly, but long-term we hope to do something like that. Near-term, we're just going to also display the amount, the amount of Litecoin. Sure. So you'll just see, oh, okay, I've got 0.1 Litecoin or whatever, and that is the same today as it was yesterday. Right. So let's talk about the Medium comparison. So Medium is, on the one hand, a platform unto itself, but on the other hand, it's a platform that allows people to brand it really intensely and kind of make it their own thing. And I mean, like, that's, that's I think, really the use case that it's been most effective in is people taking ownership of their Medium and then, you know, having it just like publish articles and get lots of throughput and then connections within that. Yeah. So, I mean, how close does that track with what you're doing with yours? I think, you know, we're, we're realistically not going to be able to compete with Medium on those terms. I mean, we would certainly like to be as good as Medium on those things, but that's Medium's specialty. Sure. So, you know, we think our specialty is that we've got built-in micropayments. Uh -huh. So we have something that you can do with our platform that you just can't do with Medium, and it doesn't look like you'll be able to do it anytime soon. They have a completely different monetization scheme based on subscriptions, and it's, it's just a totally different – I mean, that'll work for some people, but it's not going to work for all people, and sure. so we have an alternative. Yeah. So we're going to compete more on the fact that we've got built-in micropayments. Right. You can just do things with this that you just can't do on Medium. We do like Medium a lot, though. I, I like to use Medium as a comparison because we like it. I mean, Medium is yeah. awesome. They do a really good job at what they do, and we really look up to them in that sense. So with respect to things like customizing it, giving yourself a good profile, these are all features that we will sort of roll out as we can over time on the basis of our own priorities. And I'll just say realistically for listeners of this podcast, we have a lot of known payments bugs. So we're going to have to keep the product itself very simple uh, for a while yet because most of our time is still going to be occupied fixing, you know, these sort of money losing bugs, you know. So realistically, we just we're going to be better than medium in only one way, which is we've got micropayments and they don't. And I just don't think we'll be able to compete with them in the other things. And, I, and nor would we, we, we want to. It's medium is great. And if, you know, if that's what you're looking for, you can already use medium for those things. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by bkeychain.com, where you can pick up inexpensive, attractive Bitcoin and Litecoin keychains. bkeychain.com is also the exclusive home of the collectible Bitcoin fork. Since 1975, bkeychain.com for all your cryptocurrency keychain needs.
I do want to turn to technical issues, but I want to go just a little further into the future with yours. So you said that you raised some money last year and right was last year? Yes. Yeah. So you raised some money last year. You didn't raise too much. Kind of what's the trajectory with the company right now? Are you guys raising money at the moment? Are you yeah. planning on doing, I mean, like this takes us into the next conversation, which is that yours is one of the very few projects in the space that is both attempting to do something like a social network, but does not have its own native token component to it. And that is actually pretty rare in the space. And at the yeah. time you made the choice, it wasn't as rare, but now it's really, yes. you know, like rare. So so talk to me about that, like the choice to use um, Bitcoin in its pure sense, rather than to pick something, I'm sorry, now Litecoin in its yes. pure sense, cryptocurrency in its pure sense, and uh, not to go down that path uh, as Steam did, as other things have done, of creating a token that then pulls together the community allows you to fundraise so it's a it's a common it's a combination question here on the one side it's about tell me about your thoughts on kind of why you didn't do a token and then tell me how you're planning on raising money or if you even need to yeah so this is this is a debate we've had the entire history of this project it goes back even when i was at reddit what is the right option here so there are a lot of reasons why you might want to make a token uh, so let's consider that option first. One is fundraising and i think the reality is almost all of these tokens that exist i would say Probably 99% of them. 100% of them. Okay, 100%, 100%. are about, are they're like, well, this is, let's make a token because then we can raise money and then we use the token for this protocol or app or whatever it is. So that's a that's a fine reason, but it also is, like, as you say, 100%. I mean, it's like, it, it is actually the primary driving force for why these people are making tokens. But what problem are you really solving by making a token? Some tokens really solve a problem. I think Bitcoin solved a problem. And I don't know what your thoughts on all the other ones are. I'll say that I think Ethereum actually solved the problem too. As pro-Bitcoin as it gets, but I do think Ethereum is good. I think that uh, some of the other ones solve a problem. Many of them don't though. So if you don't have a real good reason to use a token, it feels a little dishonest to me. It feels like we want to force our users to use a token just so that we can speculate on our own token or something. It just seems very dishonest. So we thought about what are we really building and what do we really need to do? The content monetization problem, it didn't seem like it required a new token. In fact, if we could just use dollars, we would just use dollars. If we could have peer-to-peer -peer digital cash dollar payments, we'd do that because that's actually more familiar for more people and would solve the problem better, I think, than even using a cryptocurrency uh, at all. So it didn't seem like we needed a token to solve the problem we were trying to solve. It seemed like a pointless distraction. Now, with that being said, I don't want to dismiss all token projects. There are good ones. Sometimes they solve problems. Uh, so if that's what you're doing, like you need a token for whatever it is, then by all means use a token. But it just didn't seem like the right way to solve the problem we were trying to solve. And the problem that you're trying to solve now, I mean, originally when I was, when I was you know, thinking about that question, I was thinking that you're trying to solve a curation problem because that's what the kind of Reddit thing is, that's what the Steemit thing is, but that's not really what you're trying to do at all. You're just trying to essentially, it seems like monetization, direct connection, kind of what would you say the, the pillars of, of the yours platform value proposition are? Absolutely, so I, I, curation is a key part of this. So yeah. actually we think there are a bunch of interrelated problems here that, that we think can all be solved by just thoughtfully monetizing things. Mm -hmm. So curation is, is key. Getting the curation right is going to be very important. So curation for the audience just means, you know, not only do you get the person paid who created the content, but if someone does a good job curating a good list of content, 
They're a good curator. We want to get those people paid too. Right, and the curate verb is to find and select from amongst all of the crap out there. Yeah. You know, you pick the gems, you put it together into a list. That's a curated list. A curator creates a list. We used to only talk about curators in the context of museums, right? A curator in a museum is someone who puts together different exhibits and picks the different artifacts that are going to be there. So that, that motif sort of made its way over to the social media space in the last couple of years. So it just in case anybody doesn't know that, that's what that means. <laughs> the core value proposition behind Steemit, what I was excited about was this idea that you could use a token that would be awarded to people who did well within the, the mechanism so that it didn't require people to actually give money, right? It just required people to say, compared to everything else on the platform, this is the best stuff. And then both the people who put in the best stuff get some of the points, the people who pick the things, like you said, the curation reward. And it mean, and the advantage of the token in that case is not necessarily a funding benefit to the company. It's a funding benefit to the participants because it means that they don't have to solve that chicken egg problem of finding the exact right participants. You just have to start curating the content. And then if the system does well, then you know the weighting of the people who do the best curation go up, which means they have more power in the system. And so again, like, I liked the underlying model. What I didn't like was that 60%, 50%, I don't even know how much, uh, wound up in the hands of people who had nothing to do with curation. And right. so as a result, the curation skewed very early on towards them. But even about that, like from a market perspective, I've been wrong. From a market perspective, Steam, if you participated at any point during the thing, then it was a profitable enterprise for you. So, you know, I mean, like, I think that's a net positive to the users even in that situation where there was this gigantic distortion that made me completely ignore the whole project. Yeah. Yeah. This is, it's actually one of our advantages that by not making a new token, we can't have that particular problem. Right. <laughs> so it's not like there's going to be the case that there's somebody out there that has 60% of the yours coin right. and can like weight everything in their favor so just so they continue to be the richest person. Right. That just wouldn't happen on this platform. The way it would happen instead is, you know, the only way for that to happen would be you got to create a lot of good content and people pay you for it. Let me let me respond to the curation thing too, because Steam's, it's funny when I talk with people about Steam, you know, you hit on the whale problem, which is we've talked to the number of Steam users. This is very often their number one complaint that there are a handful of Steam users that have like most of the coin. And because of the way the Steam economics work, they just weight everything in their favor and can never lose. They have a, a few other problems. So the other problem with Steam is that nobody understands how their economics work. It's got really complicated economics. Now, I think they have good reasons for doing all that, but at the same time, it's very unusual, and our models are always really simple. So, for instance, one of our curation models was the affiliate model I described earlier. Imagine when you buy a piece of content, you get a special link, which is your affiliate link. Now, you can share that link with other people, and if they actually buy the content, you get 10% of the revenue. So for instance, I've got a popular Twitter feed, so I could curate content on yours by posting it to Twitter. But I have a, a reason to post content that other people are actually gonna buy, because that's the only way I earn any money. And I also have to actually buy it myself first, so it's not like I'm gonna buy crappy stuff, I'm gonna buy stuff that I think is worth paying for. So it's easy to understand the affiliate model, and if you think about the way the incentives work here, the creator gets money for creating something that people actually buy. It's got to be worth paying for. The curator gets money for actually leading people to purchase the content. So we think this purchasing element is pretty important. Like the fact that you actually buy it is a strong signal of quality. Okay. We have another model, which I didn't say earlier, which is like, a, this is something else we haven't implemented yet, but we'll, we'll do so soon 
when you buy a piece of content, it'll say, was this piece of content worth paying for? Mm. Yes or no? If you have to buy the content first, mm -hmm. it is so meaningful whether you say yes or whether you say no. Right. Because sometimes it's worth paying for. Yeah. Yes, that was worth paying for. That's an upvote. Or no, it's not. That was horrible. Mm -hmm. No, that's not worth paying for. But it's the upvoting and the downvoting in this case are limited to people that actually paid for mm. the content. Yeah. So it's like a thousand times more meaningful yeah. than the upvotes and downvotes on other platforms. So this is a different way that we're going to solve this curation problem. The information we have about what's good and what's bad is going to be really high quality. Right. There are going to be fewer upvotes and downvotes, but they're going to be right. It's going to be, man, if that's a 100% upvote, that means those people actually really like that content. So anyway, uh, in summary, our solutions to all these problems are completely different than Steam. Mm -hmm. And we don't need a token. We just don't see how a token is the best answer to any of these problems. We just need money. We need peer-to-peer -peer cash payments. And we can leverage that to solve all these problems. So recently, yours switched to Litecoin. You said that it was actually a relatively easy uh, move. So now, Bitcore and Litecore, is that a Litecoin fork of the Bitcore project from BitPay? Yes, yes, it is. So, uh, so Bitcore is this excellent sort of suite of tools for interacting with the Bitcoin blockchain from mm. BitPay. Litecore is just a fork of Bitcore that changes a few things so that it works on Litecoin instead. Mm -hmm. So fortunately, because this wonderful open source software exists, we were using Bitcore before. The fact that some of the Litecoin developers forked it, it's all open source. So there's, they were able to do this without you know, having to pay for licenses or something like that. They made it work on Litecoin, and that made it incredibly easy for us to switch. As I said, we had to change very few lines of code uh, to just make the switch over to Litecoin. So the original tagline for Let's Talk Bitcoin, which you don't really say anymore because I moved to focus on kind of non-monetary, non-currency stuff, was the ideas, people, and projects building the future of money. And it seems to me that that remains true <laughs> with, with Bitcoin, I think. But the low value stuff, so like the low value use cases, like I said, my use cases tend to be around $10 these days. Your use cases are much less than that for kind of your individual transaction basis. You know, Bitcoin seems to be moving more and more towards this digital gold. It's not expensive relative to other options, but compared to crypto, compared to really any other option out there, it's an order of magnitude more expensive. Yeah. And this is a problem that seems like, I mean, again, it seems like if people follow your lead and Litecoin picks up 20 projects that had been putting volume onto the Bitcoin blockchain, then that you know, becomes a problem really anywhere you go. And Ethereum is the same thing. I think I paid a buck seventy-five for a transaction in uh, on the Ethereum blockchain yesterday. And it's just, you know, what, three years old at this point, two and a half years old? Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of these low-value use cases, you guys have gone with sort of a roll-your-own uh, implementation of uh, Lightning Network that, as you said, only has kind of one node. How is that going? I mean, do you think that these are actually viable scaling solutions? Because we've been talking about these things for a long time, and there have been very few actual real usable implementations for anyone outside of a testnet. Yeah. So there's so much to say about this. Uh, I'll, uh, so first of all, you know, Lightning is good technology. The Lightning Network does solve problems. It solves problems like being able to send a transaction instantly mm -hmm. instead of waiting 10 minutes for it to confirm. That's really cool. That's a great property. Uh, it does solve the problem of being able to send lower value transactions than what the main chain will allow you to do. But there are a bunch of caveats on that statement. 
that are not easy to understand at first glance. But once you start working through the details and, and figuring out how it would actually work, you realize, well, you don't actually gain that much, especially anytime soon. When people talk about the Lightning Network, they often like to talk about it as though it is completely rolled out and everybody uses it for everything. But I don't see how that's going to happen. The only way it's going to happen with a project like the one we built, yours, where you onboard people one at a time and they begin using it. Then you start to realize that the Lightning Network doesn't solve every problem. For one thing, you still have to pay onboarding fees to get them into the system. Right. You've got to fund the channel with a lot more money than you're planning on using for the individual payments, which on Bitcoin today is very expensive. You can't actually send small values. And this is something that's a little bit, again, like not easy to see at first glance. But let's suppose you open a payment channel and for $100, which is a realistic amount of money that you're going to need to fund on Bitcoin today, and you want to buy a cup of coffee because you're not going to use an on-chain transaction to buy a cup of coffee because everyone in Bitcoin knows that that would be insane today. It didn't right. used to be, but it is today. But you can use a payment channel. So you buy a cup of coffee and your cup of coffee costs $3. Well, $3 is the cost of a Bitcoin transaction fee. So let's suppose you buy one cup of coffee and then you don't use your channel for a while and now you want to cash out. You actually can't afford, or rather the, the recipient of that channel who got the $3 literally cannot access that $3. Mm -hmm. They never get it mm -hmm. because they can't afford the transaction fees to spend that $3 output because fees are more than $3 now. So that's an important consequence that's going to happen when we're in an in-between phase before Lightning Network is used for everything always all the time. And you actually got to like close your channels from time to time. You're going to find that the practical limit on the lower value of payments is going to be roughly the cost of fees. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to, by and large, still be sending more than the amount of fees if you want to actually be able to get your money out of that channel. So now there are all sorts of ways in which you could imagine if the Lightning Network is very, very widely used, that problem would be, would be a lot lower because you never get in and out. So if you just open the channel, it stays open permanently and you never close it, then you got one transaction that's $3 or whatever. That person will never be able to spend it, but they're going to send and receive a lot more value over time. So you just don't worry about it. And those cases will be minimal. So let me uh, ask a quick question. So what happens? So, so the scenario you're talking about makes the assumption, I think, that the person who is selling me the cup of coffee for $3 is only selling one cup of coffee on the Lightning Network. If, if they sell one to me and then they sell one to you and you've got a lightning uh, channel open and they sell one to somebody yeah. else, that technically, I mean, like thinking about it, you still have the problem in that those $3 need to come out of each of those channels and they need to go somewhere else. But that should be going to the right. So in your situation, you've got the hub in the middle or the Oracle in the middle and everybody has a channel open with the Oracle. And so the Oracle takes $3 from each of those people at whatever point that they close and then the person gets $9, right? So there's three people, the person gets $9 at the end. Are you having to, does a fee have to be paid on each one of those $3 coming out of the payment channel or is that built into the contract? Yeah, so the, the, the transactions are as follows. Uh, one is sending money to the wallet, one is the funding transaction, one is the commitment transaction, which is the channel itself. The final one would be the spending transaction. There's often going to be another transaction that spins from the spending transaction. So four or five transactions per lightning channel open and close in your system. Yes. So if you try to be comprehensive with what realistically are all the transactions mm -hmm. to open and close a channel, it's about five. Yeah. So, you know, where who pays these fees? Well, the first three of them are basically paid by the person that opens the channel. Mm -hmm. 
And unless you want to do something weird, it pretty much is going to work that way. Mm -hmm. The opener of the channel is the one that pays those fees. The fees for spending depend on, you know, the, the when you close a channel, you're going to spend some of it. The person on the other side is going to spend some of it. So you both got to pay a fee in that case. And then the one that exits the spending transaction, which is realistically going to happen quite often, uh, is yet another one. Roughly speaking, the person that opens a channel pays the fees. I mean, there are a bunch of subtle details here. It also depends on whether the real Lightning Network happens using segregated witness, in which case you've got buy-funded channels, which changes things. It's better, but it doesn't really eliminate these problems. Like, I mean, how do you actually buy a cup of coffee with a Lightning Network? Who are you going to open a channel to? Do you open a channel to the merchant? If so, you're going to have the problem I said earlier, which is that first cup of coffee you buy is going to cost $100 because it doesn't make sense to open a $3 payment channel. Right. So you, you open a channel to that merchant for $100. Now, when you want to use that $100 to buy something else, assuming everyone's actually connected on the Lightning Network, what happens when that merchant goes down? I mean, who even is this merchant? Are you sure you want to open a $100 payment channel with, with this merchant? Do you, you don't even know. So you might be better off opening channels to people that you actually know and are likely to keep their technology on and whatnot. That's probably going to be exchanges in various Bitcoin businesses. And then everyone will end up being connected to the same you know, sort of number of hubs. That's a pretty workable option, but I, I just don't see it realistically lowering the actual fees at the end of the day, um, unless everybody's on it. But the in-between phase, which is going to last a while, you got to get people on just to begin with. And everybody's got to change everything to be able to use the Lightning Network because yeah. the way the payments work is just totally different. It's going to be a while before everyone's on it. Furthermore, even after, I mean, imagine a scenario where everyone is using the Lightning Network. And I don't mean to d diss it. I feel like I'm being slightly networked. I do think Lightning Network is awesome technology. It's extremely valuable, will be very helpful to Bitcoin. But I don't think it simply solves the scaling problem. I think we still need lots of on-chain scaling. Because imagine everybody's actually using the Lightning Network. Right. There are some simple numbers you can run that show that Bitcoin with a one megabyte block size limit, okay, we could say it's two megabytes with SegWit or depending on how you run the numbers, slightly higher. How do like how many people could even use the Lightning Network ever? Because you gotta send a Bitcoin transaction to someone. There's at least gonna be one before they can open a channel. It's obviously really ultimately gonna be more than that. Opening a channel as all these other has other transactions I t talked about. But let's assume it's just one. And there's a funny number. I'll just pose this to you as a question. If you run the numbers on this, how long would it take to send everybody in the world a Bitcoin transaction if the block size is limited to one megabyte. How long? It takes 30 years. It would take 30 years. So 30 years of full blocks. That's 30 years of full blocks where the only thing you're doing is giving each individual person in the world one transaction. Hmm. So realistically, I mean, it, it still comes nowhere near being able to use right. global adoption is what I'm saying. <clears throat> so even uh, no matter what the fees even end up being, I mean, a one megabyte block size limit, in my opinion, and I, I'll get railed on by some people on social media for saying it. I've said it before. I'll say it again. It is way too small. We need to be thinking about how do we get to radically larger block size? And all the concerns people have are totally valid. So concerns like it needs to be affordable to run a node. That's true. So part of the answer is to lower the cost of computing which is something that does happen year over year after year. So that's good. That actually helps a lot, that it's going to be half as expensive and twice as fast, you know, your, your computer next year. That goes a long way. 
There are other solutions or other technical solutions, but at the end of the day, I also would argue that I think it's better if the cost of running a node is allowed to become more expensive. Because even today, it's not that expensive to run. You can imagine, I look at your computer over here, I bet you could run one heck of a node on that computer. And I, 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 that level of computing power is affordable to most people in the world. Yeah. So, you know, you can run a computer, just a normal computer today can run with significantly higher block size with basically no problem. Well, so, but let's play that out for a second. Um, you know, this is what, uh, like, this is, this is basically the debate that's been going on here is that, yes, that's true, but that still doesn't change the fact that we can't actually get to scale in a way that's on-chain that can service everyone yeah. in the world, even if we did go to blocks that yeah. are substantially larger than they are now. Yeah. So, I mean, so what... So given that those two things are, are true, then I mean, what does that mean? Does that mean we're just waiting for a new breakthrough in terms of technology or does that, I mean, what, what's, what's the path getting from here to there? I'll tell you exactly what the path is. Lightning Network is awesome technology. If, if we had one gigabyte blocks, and I know I'm going to get trolled on social media. Yeah, you are. <laughs> but one gigabyte blocks plus the Lightning Network completely solves the problem. Okay. You need really big blocks and a layer two on top. Okay. Other things like side chains are also really good. Uh, those will be really useful for other things. Uh, we'll see how this all plays out. I'm, I'm not exactly sure how it will play out. Sure. Side chains probably will be used for things, and I'm sure it'll offload some of the capacity from Bitcoin. Um, nonetheless, I think the real answer here is all of the above. I mean, there's just it's a it's a false dichotomy, and it's something that people often say in the space. They'll say like. You know, something like, so, you, you know, you want on-chain transactions, so therefore you believe all the world's transactions to be on-chain. I'm like, I never said that. I never said that. I don't believe that's true. I think we need on-chain and off-chain scaling both, and this is how we reach the entire world. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show comes to us from Ryan X. Charles and myself, Adam B. Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and Mind to Matter. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin. Thanks for listening.